Hey, everyone. It's Hugo Bound Anderson here. You're always friendly, occasionally a bullion, and often quite verbose data scientist and podcast host. I recently had the pleasure of hosting a webinar at DataCamp, in which I spoke with Catherine Jarmel about data privacy in the age of COVID-19. Catherine is the head of product at Cape Privacy, a company building systems to leverage secure, privacy-preserving machine learning and collaborative data science. So we don't currently put out regular podcasts like we used to at DataCamp, but I honestly found my conversation with Catherine so stimulating, interesting, and fun, due to her, of course, that we wanted to share it with you all. As it was recorded from a webinar, the audio quality might be slightly lower than you're accustomed to when listening to DataFramed, but I'm sure that the content will make up for it. I hope you enjoy it. And this is DataFramed. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Hugo. How are you? Good. How are you? Pretty good. I'm going to read your bio as Ryan read mine so everyone knows who you are. (laughs) Catherine is doing something that I'm very excited about. She's head of product at Cape Privacy, which is a company that builds uh, systems to leverage secure, privacy-preserving machine learning and collaborative data science. Catherine's been using code since 2008 to, in her own words, solve and create problems. She helped (laughs) to form the first Pi Ladies chapter in LA in, in 2010 co-authored an O'Reilly book. She's a data camp instructor. She enjoys following the latest developments in machine learning, adversarial attacks, data privacy and ethics and workflow automation infrastructure, and is generally chatty. Chatty and crabby, these are her words once again. Keep up with her latest shenanigans, and it's at KJAM, K-J-A-M. Catherine, as I just said, is a data camp instructor. She has a course on introduction to natural language processing in mm-hmm. Python. I forgot until I looked this up, you also have a project called Who's Tweeting, Trump or Trudeau, where I presume people do some NLP to figure out whose tweets. Yeah, we collected some tweets between uh, President Trump and Trudeau, and we basically train a classifier there. So if you finish my course and you haven't done the project, check out the project and, and see it out. Cool thing is, is that at the end you'll inspect and it might be a little bit uh, deceiving how well it works. Wow. Because my initial, <laughs> I'd be like, does string contain term bleach currently. We're here to talk about data privacy and where we are today. And I'll just mention we're all around the globe currently. And thank you so much for all of you tuning in all hours of the day. Catherine's currently in Berlin. Ryan's in Florida. I'm currently in Australia. We're bringing this to you from around the globe. But we're here today to talk about data privacy. Uh, Catherine and I have enjoyed many conversations uh, about data privacy in the past. If you enjoy this conversation, you go and listen to a conversation we had a couple of years ago about privacy when GDPR came in on the DataFrame podcast. But we're here to talk about how data privacy in general, but what's changing now um, in the age of the coronavirus. But before we jump into that, I thought, you know, everyone has a different origin story in in data science, Catherine. So I thought you could just tell us a bit about how you got into it originally. Yeah, really uh, interesting story. So I was really good at math and computers growing up. Did not think it was weird as a little girl to be really advanced in math and computers. And I can thank my parents for that support, as well as a bunch of really amazing teachers. However, when I got to university, that's when I first realized, like, maybe it was a little odd since uh, it was like less than 1% of my incoming class uh, 
were women. And so that was a little awkward for me. I ended up shifting and becoming an econ and poli-sci double major. And I kind of thought computer science isn't for me anymore. Data science at the time was like quite dead other than like the statistics I learned, for example, in political science and economics were actually quite helpful. And yeah, so this was a while ago now that would have been uh, graduated in 2004. And then I kind of accidentally fell into data science. So I, I ended up getting a master's in journalism and I was working at the time at the Washington Post. I would hack together lots of data visualizations and other things to go alongside stories, interactives we used to call them. And I caught the eye of the person who ran their apps team. And he said, hey, do you wanna maybe come help us with some stuff? And then I started building like databases for the reporters, um, different interactives and, and maps for the reporters. I started getting back, diving back into statistics and that way kind of fell into it and, and have been doing that since. So that was around uh, 2007 to 2008. And yeah, been been doing that since with went on and off uh, but yeah, definitely since machine learning has really changed and brought a lot of promise since the early to 2010s been into that. So I really love data camp and people self-teaching and self-learning. I think I learned a lot just by doing and asking and finding good mentors and getting curious. So I really appreciate kind of that, that element of the data camp mission. Awesome. We appreciate that a, a lot. I am fascinated that you recognized your maths and computational skills and comp sci skills really early. And then you went to journalism and then you were, you were dragged back in by, you know, database <laughs> and sysadmin stuff or whatever. But you do, like, you don't, you're not only, a, this is going to sound horrible what I'm about to say. I was going to say you're not only a data scientist, but you can actually work computers as well. But what I really mean is, I suppose, a bunch of data engineering stuff and actual computer science as well and software engineering skills, right? Yeah. Back in 2008, 2009, I think most people thought of data science as like, can you build a graph to go along with this database that I have? I'm sure that it was more advanced outside of my circles, but that was about as far as we were in the data journalism field. And then in some of the startups that I initially went to work with, I kind of became obsessed with data quality and data wrangling and this type of thing because that was most of the problems in the time was to answer the question properly, we had to make sure that we were even collecting the right data or even looking in the right places. And that's still the problem. <laughs> right? And of course, you also, your O'Reilly book is on data wrangling. It may even be called data wrangling. I can't remember. Yeah, but. it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's an unfortunate case. I think it's getting better. At least like more people are paying attention now to the problems that we have with data quality, which is A, understanding and testing as things come in, right? I got to shout out to Great Expectations there, doing some good work uh, in that space, as well as data governance, lineage. Where does the data come from? Under what circumstances was it collected? I think a lot of these things can help drive conversations around quality and can drive conversations around privacy, which is what I want to chat about yeah. today. Very much so. And I think data testing, you're, you're absolutely on, on point there. And data testing with respect to model drift and concept drift, if you have new data coming on in and you want to maintain your models as opposed to assume 
they're working however you thought they were. So maybe before we jump in, you can also tell us a bit about Cape Privacy. I gave a very short elevator pitch, but maybe you could tell us a bit more. Yeah, yeah. So Cape Privacy, um, I joined about six months ago. Um, It's an amazing team. They were together before I joined. They were really focused on research around encrypted machine learning. And so uh, really determining, is it even possible to use some encryption schemes within machine learning in a reasonable way? As part of that process, they built uh, an open source TF encrypted, which stands for TensorFlow encrypted, that uses uh, an encryption scheme called secure multi-party computation. You might have heard of secure computation before. This is the the backing of that to do TensorFlow, which is pretty darn cool if you ask me. And so I got in touch with them. They were looking for a head of product. And and so I joined and really part of the quest has been getting this amazing group. So research oriented, you know, deep learning specialization, cryptographers, lots of really deep knowledge, engineers, um, cloud architecture, these types of things, and getting our minds together to create something that people can use, which, yeah, we're excited. Our initial launch will be in late June. So Stay tuned. And it's really around um, collaborative data science. So how can we bring different experts to the table, maybe security experts or data privacy or legal experts and data scientists all together to, you know, really leverage advanced privacy and security techniques. That sounds like very exciting work and a very exciting group of people to be doing it with as well. I just want to, you said TensorFlow, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too quickly, but the idea of like doing secure privacy respecting machine learning on an open source package, which has governance of a com- from a company like Google seems there's a lot of, it's a web of ideas and possible futures, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the team definitely has plans to support PyTorch. There's already been some work in PyTorch as well. Of course, one could argue that is also mainly backed by a larger company. It's interesting to think about these things, like we need to integrate with systems where people are And we're also working on some things in the federated space, uh, some of which overlap with other federated learning platforms like TF Federated or TensorFlow Federated, and some which might uh, kind of be built on their own. So, But we're open core, so there will always be open source versions. We really are looking forward to the community feedback. So if you want to play around with it, please join. That's awesome. So before we jump into privacy, I actually, I wasn't going to do this. I'm probably going to mess this up. I've been reading this book recently that you just reminded me of. This is like reading time with Hugo. It's turned into a, into a, into a book club, but it's actually very relevant. It's Human Compatible by Stuart Russell, who thinks about a lot of things, including privacy. He says there are multiple layers to the privacy story. First, can a personal assistant really be useful if it knows nothing about you? Probably not. Now, he's being provocative. Then he says, second, can personal assistants be really useful if they cannot pull information from multiple users to learn more about people in general and people who are similar to you? Probably not. So don't these two things imply that we have to give up privacy to benefit from AI in our daily life? He says the reason is that learning algorithms can operate on encrypted data using their techniques of secure multi-party computation so that users can benefit from pooling without compromising privacy in any way. That's what we build. I was about to explain with a cuss word, which is definitely inappropriate. 
But one of the reasons this is a really exciting part of the conversation, we're not really going to be talking about how to encrypt data for developing principled machine learning algorithms. But in what I read and what we've been talking about, there's an assumed trade-off between convenience, utility, and privacy, which may be a straw man. And something we'll be talking about is we're constantly sold that there's a trade-off between privacy and security in times of crisis. In order to be secure, we need to give up privacy. And we saw what happened post 9-11, right, where we gave up a lot of privacy. And then with the Snowden, we gave up a whole bunch load of privacy and it didn't even bloody work. There is a lot of things we gave up not knowing that seems useless in, in the end. So thinking about whether this is actually a, a false dichotomy, I think will be very interesting. So before jumping into COVID-19, you could just give me a general rundown of the data privacy space. I know that, you know, we could spend days talking about that. What you see the biggest challenges as being? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges and something that really drew me to the work of uh, Kate Privacy is about productionizing research. So there's amazing depth of research in the data privacy space. There's people that have been working on computational or quantification of privacy for decades now. Uh, when we look at, for example, Cynthia Dwork's work around the initial uh, origins of differential privacy privacy, right? And so there's all this amazing theory and uh, quite a lot of deep mathematics around quantifiable privacy. And yet, even when we see things like at NORIPS, there was a great panel on differential privacy in production. And a lot of it was like, yeah, kind of. And that's okay. It's okay to not be there yet. But I think it's really time for us to look at can we productionalize research? And can we, you know, really push research forward with real world use cases and real world threats that we know about and that we care about? Right. And so this implies, of course, like good relationships between people in research and people in industry. And I think that's something that the overall machine learning community has been bringing up time and time again, also within ethics research is mm. how do we kind of take what we know about it from a theoretical standpoint and create it for this kind of imperfect production system or imperfect uh, society and all of these other things, right? So some, of that, did some of this work at Apple, is that right? Or did I make that up? She's some of it at Microsoft and I don't remember where she went after. Apple has a differential privacy team that works okay. on productionizing differential privacy. Um, so they released a paper, I guess, about two years ago now nearly, on how they do differential privacy around uh, your keyboard data collection. It's really cool yeah, right. article. Okay. So um, they have some work there too. And I think like one thing that's really important now and that I think uh, hopefully continues to be important is I'm seeing more people ask questions and be concerned about data privacy. I'm seeing it from news outlets. I'm seeing it from fellow data scientists. I'm seeing it from overall communities at large. And I think as we get deeper into the COVID-19 reactions, I think there's a lot of really productive public conversation now around some of these topics. And I hope that that continues because asking questions and being informed and being curious is really, really important for something like this to go from theory to reality. It is really important that we're having the conversation now. And there is a window open, I think, for privacy, 
for data ethics, AI ethics, but it isn't clear how long that window will be open. So let's do the work, right? Yeah, yeah. I hope that it's not a passing fad that we really say, oh, hmm, like I'm concerned about this for many aspects. I would like to learn more. And not saying everybody has to become an expert, but I hope some people here today are like, ah, hmm, I'm curious about this. I want to know, know more. I want to contribute. I want to try out, try asking some of these questions on my own projects. Just that would help a lot. For sure. So without getting too technical, what do some of the possibilities in the solution space look like to, to the things we're, we're talking about? Yeah, it depends sometimes on the problem. So there's many different what we often refer to as advanced privacy techniques or advanced security techniques, including a variety of secure computing or encryption techniques, techniques like differential privacy, which I believe we'll dive into a little bit later, K-anonymization or other anonymization schemes, so on and so forth, right? There's also some techniques that are maybe more simple and straightforward, like obfuscation, hashing, pseudonymization, so on and so forth. And so there's many, many of these different tools the problem really is, or the problem that I'm definitely thinking about daily in my work at K-Privacy is without becoming an expert, how do you know what tool is right for the job? And how do you even assess what the security threat model is or what you're actually concerned about from a privacy perspective? And this is really hard, right? And you shouldn't have to become an expert. You're already an expert in whatever part of data science you've decided to dive into. You can't really ask everyone to also add a whole nother area of expertise. And so some of what we're working on and what I think would really help with the solution space is kind of better awareness, better education, and the ability to empower data scientists to say, okay, I can go reference here, I can see what's useful, I can understand what's the actual threat, and then I can implement something easily without having to become a privacy expert, right? And some of this is also about getting input from multiple people. So sometimes if you have a legal department, maybe they should be a part of the conversations in a productive way. If you have a really awesome security team, then they should be a part of these conversations. And it's about kind of everybody being able to share their expertise. You all who are here as the data science experts and then others within their own areas. And I think together, if you have this like cross collaboration or cross disciplinary teams, we actually can come to like a whole nother level of understanding where the solution fits the problem. So companies didn't always have security experts or legal teams or the, these types of things. I, I wonder, do you see a future in like most companies will have a, a data privacy team or a data security or data risk team or experts or something like that? I think the overall, let's say like consumer awareness, I think the awareness of the average person on the data collection that's being done regularly is increasing. A lot of times now when people just want to say hi and what do you do, I say I work on privacy machine learning uh, and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm worried about that. Like I have an Alexa at home, like, is it okay? 
And I'm like, yeah, you know, hopefully here's some things to think about. Here's some articles if you want to dive into it. But I think more often than not, I challenge kind of my peers, my fellow data science scientists and machine learning folks to say, how much do we need to take in these considerations when we're thinking of systems? And I think the movement in the past, let's say, eight years or so of also pushing a more ethical approach to machine learning and data science, I feel like it goes together well with the data privacy thing too, because really, to some degree, privacy is about consent, it's about awareness, it's about understanding and transparency, and some of these overlap quite well with the debate that we have around ethics. I love it. And the reason I love what you said it's about and not what it is, is because I think it is an amorphous term in in a lot of ways now. We're trying to figure out what privacy actually means. So, for example, I mean, it was around 10 years ago, probably a bit more, that any of us would have been surprised had we been targeted ads based on keywords in our email correspondence, right? And then suddenly, a few years, like, we were outraged when that happened. And then a year or two later, it was like, oh, no, that's just Google. That's just Google. (laughs) Right. And, of course... On that spectrum, we have Zuckerberg as well, who's like, privacy doesn't mean whatever he says, right? I actually don't listen to the words anymore. But he does have a point in the sense that our idea of privacy has in the age of Alexa and in the age of smartphones and these these types of things. But we do need to develop, and this is a lot of things you're working on, these kind of robust principled approaches to even how to have these conversations and empower individual users to citizens, consumer users, whatever we want to call ourselves these days to make these decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's also something there, obviously, about collective action, right? And there's also something about non-shaming of people. Sometimes, let's say, from like a more deep, involved privacy community or security community, people may say, well, if you buy an Alexa, you deserve it or something like this right Mm. and i think actually similar to the book quote that you shared earlier that people should be open to having or trying new things but creating some awareness around potential risks and especially creating responsibility on behalf of the teams that build these technologies and the companies that build these technologies to actually think and ask the right questions and to test things and to innovate and to try to, again, productionalize the research. I think that's not only a really fun technical challenge, something that we're working on pretty regularly, but also, uh, you know, kind of a goal for us to set for the field itself is remember those times when it was hard to figure out how we could reason about data privacy in machine learning systems. Well, that was in the past. Now we have a good roadmap of mm. how to make those choices. Exactly. And I think that type of thing that you hear a lot, like, oh, you buy an Alexa, you know what you're getting. It's a form of shaming as well, especially when people use terms like you deserve it. And it reminds me of when people say, why do you care about privacy? What do you have to hide? Right. And there are so many, I mean, that can catch you immediately, but to put the burden of proof on someone who wants their own privacy preserved, I think is the height of absurdity. And also it doesn't even acknowledge that people in positions of power, historically, we know time and time again, have abused having access to private things about people. And on top of that, the fact that we define, I mean, we develop our own senses of identity and define ourselves through things we only know about ourselves and that a lot of our selfhood is defined 
through what we consider private and what we consider public and having control over that, right? So what happens when that's lost? Yeah, I really like when I think about privacy, I like to reference Dana Boyd's uh, definition. She spent some time researching how young women interact with different technologies and reason about private versus public spaces. And it was really about expectation. It was about the expectation, let's say, when I share something with you here, I don't expect it to be private because I'm here and we're, we're all talking together and having a great time, I hope. But um, if we were on a phone call and I'm saying, hey, you know, and I'm telling you something personal about my life, there's a shared understanding. I actually usually don't even have to tell you, hey, please don't share this with anyone. It's implied given the context. And so the difficult thing is how do we actually implement that type of context and that type of consent in a technological system? That's a good challenge. Absolutely. And I can highly recommend to anybody who's interested in this type of stuff dana boyd's book it's it's complicated um about network lives of, of teens it's it's a revelation with respect to how uh, t- teenagers it's a tech sociological study of how teenagers use a, a lot of social media it's seriously eye-opening at a time of crisis like this catherine what changes around the conversation about data privacy and why what changes are we seeing and, and, and why are we seeing them and what do we need to think about Yeah, there's quite a lot happening right now. I spent a lot of this weekend reading debates in the security community around uh, different types of architecture, this, that, so we can go like deeper technicals, different debates on centralized versus decentralized, contact tracing, et cetera, et cetera. But um, what really impressed me that I read a few weeks ago was Ross Anderson, who is famous in the security engineering space, his article called Contract Tracing in the Real World. If you haven't read it, I can highly, highly recommend it. It tears down a lot of false arguments around as the trade-off that you mentioned, Hugo, which is the only way that we can fight coronavirus is to immediately give up all privacy and kind of punches a bunch of holes from a security perspective and just from a citizenship perspective about why that's maybe not a great argument to put forth. And we've seen this before, this security versus privacy bar. The attorney general in the United States has given this argument a lot as a reason to have uh, encryption backdoors. You know, this whole we're more secure if we're less private is a continued argument that we see for decades now and is often put forth by people in power who already have quite a lot of information uh, about us. And I think sometimes we need to question in these times, what does the consolidation of more of our data in one place mean? And we can think about this when we see that Google is helping NHS right now to develop predictive models. Now, on the forefront, that seems fine. But from a data privacy perspective, we already know last year what happened with DeepMind and the NHS is Mm -hmm. a bunch of data was shared without any consent. And nobody was alerted. Nobody was given an ability to opt out. And so... There's like these basic steps that we know where I think a lot of people would be willing to give data, but are never even asked. And I think that's, you know, a big, a big problem within when we see these like rash 
reactions, right? Let alone whether contract tracing is actually the best way for us to handle the COVID-19 crisis right now. And I think there's a related question when, you know, sure, maybe we're fine with giving up some aspects of, of privacy, but it would be good to see how the data you is will be used, how the models will be used, if there are sunset clauses, will it remain in a database that any government official and Google employee will have have access to? I'll actually, I told you this story last week. I'm going to tell the brief story of my time in, yeah. in quarantine. All our viewers out there, I, um, I flew back from New York City to Australia a month ago and I was put in quarantine. It was a government-mandated, military-enforced 14-day quarantine in a hotel room. And there was a phone, there was a telephone in the hotel room, as hotel rooms do. This phone was used for two or three purposes. One, a guy just rang around from another room and he was like, G'day, this is Ben from room 1212, rah, rah, rah. He was like, I'm setting up a Facebook group so we can all complain about everything that's happening here. So I jumped on this Facebook group, but the nurse called daily. And then I got a call from a woman who said she was working with the New South Wales, that's the state I'm in, Sydney's in, New South Wales Police Department. And I said, what do you mean you're working with the New South Wales Police Department? She said, I'm working with them. And I said, do you work for them? And she said, no, I don't. And I said, who do you work for? And she said, unfortunately, Hugo, I'm not at liberty to say I work for the government, but that's all I can, can tell you. And she said, look, I'm calling in order to find out where you've been, what flight you came in on, where you'll be going afterwards, passport number, date of birth these types of things. And I said, oh, okay, what are you going to do with this data? And she said, I'm putting it into a government database. And I said, what, and who's going to have access to that? And she said, oh, no, it's it's fine. It's just for contact tracing. I'm just going to put that in. And I was like, no, but who, how long is it going to be there? And who's going to have access to it? And she was, she didn't say, don't worry about it. I presume she'd been told to not say, don't worry about it. But that was the vibe I was getting. I didn't tell her anything. I said, look, send a police officer with a badge to my door and I'm happy to, to chat with them, but I'm not telling you any of this information over the phone. But what I actually realized is that her job also was to build a small relationship with me in that process and to make me feel good in a lot of ways in order to get the information she needed, which I presume was for a good purpose, but I have no idea about how long and what type of perpetuity this information will be available to anybody. And I think those are the types of questions we're dealing with, right? Yeah, I mean, one question that we ask a lot, both within the security field, but also uh, that I'm asking myself pretty regularly in some of the stuff we're working on at K-Privacy is what are relationships of trust and how do they interact with our concept of privacy? And I think this is a great example. Phone you up, friendly, there's a bond of trust. And as humans, especially like as trusting, optimistic, uh, happy humans, we want that connection, especially now more than ever before, right? Where, you know, you might be at home, you, you might only be interacting with, let's say, your family, you might even live alone. We want those bonds. Definitely when you're in a hospital or sorry, a hotel room, right? Yeah. You want those bonds, right? And um, again, it's probably not malicious. She probably also yeah. wants to connect with others, right? But what it is, is it's about, do we understand the risk and can we actually evaluate the risk in relationship to those relationships of trust? And so they kind of play hand in hand. We want to trust others, but what is the risk of trusting others? What is the risk of handing over your personal travel details? Is there a risk? If there's not, okay, great. But can we actually evaluate that in a meaningful way 
And we as humans, I think we often underestimate privacy risk. I don't think that we're trained or taught or that we learn very much about how to, let's say, not give uh, personal details to people that we connect with. And so, again, I don't want people to become untrusting, but it's about can we leverage, let's say, technology Can we leverage regulation like GDPR and CCPA, for example, that have the right to deletion? And can we enforce these in a meaningful way so that when you are on the phone and you do say, hey, this is a trusting relationship and I can understand a reason about the risk. And, oh, by the way, they have this confirmation of deletion they can send me once this is all over. Mm. They have a confirmation of what models were used with my data. I can see and I can consent maybe even one day to every data science activity that my data is being used for. And therefore, I can actually reason about this and I can imagine it and I can make my own choices, right? Because some of it is about empowerment and self-determination. Once we have equal access to information in terms of how data is being used and stored and when it will be deleted, right? Almost, we, you mentioned briefly, we're thinking a lot more about data lineage, data provenance these days, almost like a future data provenance of looking, having a view of where your data is going as opposed to where it's come from. Exactly, right? And being able to say, here's where I'm comfortable and here's where I'm not. There's this great concept in the data ethics community or responsible data community around data trust and the idea that we can collectively pool data and create a contract around it of we pool this health data so that it can be used to, say, fight cancer or map the genome or any number of things, but we forbid it from being used for these other things. Now, if we had real governance of of the entire system, then we could actually enforce these types of things to some degree. So I don't want to go down this path too far, but I honestly can't help myself. Speaking about how data is used, data trust, pulling it for certain uses, and talking about the right to deletion as well, how can we even think about these things when in the age of data reproduction or the ability to duplicate data, right? How could I ever believe you telling me that you've deleted my data when you could duplicate it a thousand times, right? Yeah, that is a a fantastic question and something, for example, that definitely we are working on at Kia Privacy. It also, like, for example, within GDPR, it calls for data minimization efforts, right? How can we enforce data minimization, which is essentially trying to avoid this duplication factor of sensitive data across large organizations, especially, but even in smaller organizations, we see this. And some of it is about the ability to define a system and the ability to define the rules at play within the system, right? So we kind of get down to like systems engineering or if anybody's into security engineering, that's here they're starting to be like, oh, okay, I can start to reason about this. One of the things that we've been looking into is can there be rightful attestation of deletion? Can there be attestation of when data is duplicated? Um, And Mm. there's some technical ways, of course, they require visibility, they require transparency in the system, they require you to know how your system works, right? which maybe you do and maybe you don't. 
But I encourage, especially my fellow self-taught data science folks on the line to start thinking about this is how would we even verify if we deleted data? How would I validate that the models that were using Hugo's data got removed? How would I yeah. even find the models that used Hugo's data? The more we can start actually thinking about how we might do these things, the more of a chance that we will do them. That's actually a great point, thinking about the models that use my data. The fact that you could delete my data, but you could have encoded it in a predictive model, which makes predictions about me. Or as we discussed recently, you know, you can enrich my data. And then is that the data you got from me? Or you've you put a lot of um, resources and capital into enriching it, actually. So do you, do you then own that en enriched data, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a huge debate, even within the legal field right now, mm. for larger regulations like GDPR. What does it mean? I expect there to be more follow-up on this. I spent the past week reading off the Data Ethic Commission report, a commission that was put together here in Germany to think about AI systems and to reason about ethics within them. They issued that report. The report will go to the EU government, to the EU as a whole, and there is likely to be some deep conversations and possibly a proposed AI-centric regulation in the upcoming years. Great. I um, There was something you mentioned in there before mentioning that report, and it was something like maybe we shouldn't just be collecting all the data in the first place anyway and assuming it has value because it's a function of legislation not catching up essentially with the fact that modern JavaScript can ship with a bunch of creepware, essentially. I uh, read an article or an expose, an article, whatever, a blog post, if you will, on Stripe tracking recently, where if you use the Stripe JavaScript, it actually sends a bunch of navigation information to Stripe, not even to the parent company that's like, you know, running the website. And they, they do it for fraud detection. And there's probably a, a lot in there in terms of like bots move very differently than humans on pages, this type of thing. So it might be like anti-bot. However, there's also like a lot of ways to do that without collecting everybody's navigation movements and history. And part of it was also that the terms and conditions did, were not very clear that that was what was happening. And so some of this is about documenting things, being transparent. And some of it is also asking, is this the best way for us to solve this problem? Uh, I think that actually goes along with the COVID-19 conversation quite well. It's like, is this the best solution for what we need right now? Or is this just a solution that we can do because we heard about it once and it sounded like a good idea? I want to move on to COVID-19 in a second, but you mentioned like it may not have been clear in the terms and conditions. Who reads the terms and conditions? I do, but yeah, nobody has time for it. I, well, I, 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 I knew I shouldn't. You're the one person I probably shouldn't have asked that, that question to. But a question of the difference between consent and informed consent is a big thing, particularly when multinationals have big legal teams that are good at covering their asses by trying things. Myself as a consumer user, I don't have access to that type of capital, right, or that type of labour. Yeah, I mean, this was a huge push uh, within GDPR is informed consent and the idea that you should be able to reason about what you're agreeing to. And the New York Times, I believe it was the New York Times, had a really amazing graphic on readability of privacy policies over time. And you yeah. can see 
example, like Google's at one point in time required like PhD level, nearly vocabulary understanding. And it took like 40 minutes to read. It, it actually compared it to several other texts, including the first volume, Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. And it showed that there were several <laughs> like Airbnb or whatever terms and conditions that were more difficult <laughs> to read than like the most dense philosophical texts humanity has ever produced, right? Yeah, German philosophy is pretty notorious, so yeah. <laughs> but I remember someone on Twitter was like, to be clear, the first volume of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason isn't the most difficult. And I was like, come on. <laughs> but like it's volume three or whatever, right? So how can tech help us? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> oh my God, anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean... I can tech save us, Catherine? I mean, tech alone can't do anything. Tech alone is good at computation, is good at maybe automation, is feeding up processes. And I think this is like a good, now is a good reminder time to say we cannot solve societal problems with technology. Mm. Punto. And coronavirus is a health crisis. It's a pandemic. It's also a societal crisis. It's an economic crisis that's happening right now around the world. And we're not going to solve it with a better machine learning model. And we just need to take a deep breath and say, that's okay. We can still actually use our skills around data and around machine learning to contribute in positive ways. And that doesn't mean rushing to download the data set, saying, oh, I figured it out and publishing it and sending it out to everyone the next day. It means really taking a step back and asking the critical questions. There's a lot of problems within COVID-19 that are not around, let's say, tracking individuals' movements or releasing a smart camera that can track coronavirus by telling me whether I have a fever or not. These types of things are, again, these rush solutionism that is not very well thought through. Instead, there's a ton of new reporting on, for example, phishing attacks, spam attacks, coronavirus-related cybersecurity threats. This is one area where machine learning has not really made a large penetration and where we could actually help, right? Capacity planning for hospitals, not in a coronavirus tracking sense, but just in a, let's think about the problem from, I, I know that you spoke recently with somebody working on this problem, correct? Yeah. I know recently on Data Framed, I think that you were speaking with somebody who's doing capacity planning and supply planning. Yeah, for, for Penn Medicine, we had a, had a webinar and they've developed an open source model, like figuring out how many beds are needed, how many respirators, how much PPE. Yeah. Logistics, like people that are trained in, in solving logistics problems, operations research problems in terms of why we had low supplies, how we can help with that, what is the equitable distribution of supplies. And again, not just rush download, but really taking the time to ask the people in need what would actually be beneficial. And so from a local first perspective, it's even talking within your community, getting something set up where people can share what they need online you can use some NLP that, that you learned uh, if you took my course on those data sets to say, oh, is there is there needs that we can collectively group together and make sure we have like a big group by to, to minimize the amount of exposure for delivery folks. 
food banks. There's lots of local food banks that are trying to do things. There's, of course, many other ways to help frontline workers other than tracing their movements via their cell phone, right? And then finally, you know, getting informed on more advanced privacy and security techniques. If you have some extra mental bandwidth, which is okay if you don't, but just starting to learn and talk about them and think about them and apply them in your own work is already, I think, a step forward you can take during this time that avoids, again, this rushing to figure out the easiest solution, the whole hammer approach, right? Where if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I think there's, you know, some of that. And I encourage people to get out of their comfort zone to try thinking in a cross-functional space, to try thinking with people you wouldn't normally think about data science problems with and to actually take in their input and feedback and have that drive it rather than, oh, I already know what to do. Let me just download this data set and I'll have a model to you in the next day. You mentioned several times something which a lot of people are thinking about at the moment, uh, uh, contact tracing apps. So maybe you could give us kind of the, and we're being asked to, to you know go to the app store and put them on our phones from our governments, right? So maybe you can give yeah. us kind of, like your take on contact tracing apps, whether a month ago in City and now I'm in Sydney and they're at very different parts of flattening the curve and very different numbers and densities. And I want to know whether contact tracing is even relevant for all all cities at this, this point in time. And then whether they'll work, what we need to keep in mind and, and those types of things. I know there are a lot of questions in there, but maybe we can just start by talking about contact tracing. Yeah, so contract tracing, we have to think about it in, in multiple prongs, right? From a technical standpoint, let's dive into that first because it's interesting. We have a lot of arguments happening now around centralized versus decentralized collection methods, right? Mm -hmm. And the argument often for centralized is you need a central authority or some validation that the data that you have is true and correct, right? Maybe there's something to that, but there's also the argument for decentralized, it's slightly more privacy preserving, and perhaps only centralizing it after certain data privacy mechanisms have been used. It makes me think about uh, something, for example, that we're working on at Cape Privacy is a concept of federated analytics where everybody can send updates to a secure aggregation point. Uh, this is encrypted at that point in time. And then a final result is pushed to out to all participants, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's some ways to think about this that also allow for better visibility and understanding of how the information is being used. Some level of validation, of course, the validation becomes mainly an argument of can we validate data quality? which most people, when they're thinking of these coronavirus tracing apps, how many people are going to turn it on and as a joke report that they're sick or something like this? There will be a non-zero number of that, right? And then another technical problem is the use of Bluetooth or even Wi-Fi and GPS is imprecise. It can have me close to a neighbor who's actually on the other side of a door. It can have me in a bus going by someplace or a person that is standing at the stoplight, right? It's probably much better from the more recent scientific studies, it's probably much better to determine are people in an enclosed space together or not. And that requires quite different sensors and measurements, right? Mm. And then finally, from a technical perspective, when we look at something like the Apple-Google partnership, 
it doesn't work on 2 billion devices because they're older. And the older devices are more likely people in lower income groups than older people, which are actually larger at-risk populations. So when we come up with a tech-only solution and you need the latest greatest, and yet the most vulnerable do not have the latest greatest, then what exactly is our solution, right? Are we going to ship new iPhones to every person? Is that going to be the solution? We have to kind of think of it at a, at a higher level, right? Yeah. And then there's other parts of the problem, of course, which is a lot of this contract tracing and flattening the curve is about hospital capacity near you. And one of the critical questions I don't see being asked is not this, why aren't you staying home and kind of some of this shaming that I see, which by the way, if people are not at home, they might be going to work and they might be going to work because they can't stay at home and feed themselves, right? So we need to kind of Mm. watch ourselves judging and critiquing others when we are not them and we do not know what their needs are, right? And then secondly, Why is it that our hospitals are not prepared for pandemics, even though from a statistical point of view, we know that they are not impossible or hugely unlikely? And so some of that is about, you know, thinking about the cost models of our hospitals. There was a great quote from an official in France who was like, we pay the firefighters even when a building is not on fire. And maybe we need to think about that for our healthcare systems as well, is we need to be maybe over-prepared even when there's not a pandemic. We're seeing and we'll see that there are different demographics who will like win with respect to privacy as well. This is something that we've seen play out. There's an, a wonderful book called Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks. And it's about really three large at-scale models that decide who in LA, from the people who are homeless, who will get housing, where it will be. It also decides who's eligible for for welfare in, I think that's in Pennsylvania, another model. It predicts which children are at risk. I can't remember where where that is, of of, of domestic violence, abuse and, and reports. And time and time again, throughout all these cases, Eubanks actually coins the term the digital poorhouse, which, and it essentially refers to the massive surveillance system that is able to keep its eye on people in lower socioeconomic classes across the US. And actually, I think coining the term the digital uh, poorhouse is a wonderful act of naming because it gives us a historical tether to think about what's happening happening currently. But we do see all pre-existing societal biases reinforced by at-scale inference and decision-making systems, right? I presume that we'll see similar things happening with respect to privacy around COVID, as we are with respect to bodily health. I mean, we've seen the numbers of rate of infection and fatality for, for people of colour in the US, right? Yeah, there's a lot to dive into there. I'm not sure we have time to dive into all of it. However, yeah. I gave a talk at Chaos Communication Camp this past summer called Privacy as Privilege. And I delve into many different areas. Of course, uh, Virginia Eubanks' work is in there, but it's about ways where privacy has become almost irreversibly tied to privilege within, let's say, also like especially societies that are deeply connected right now. And the ability for AI to function for you versus function against you is part of that, right? And so, so the Alexa that makes that helps me 
AI is here to help, data collection is here to help versus the AI that incarcerates me. AI is here to imprison, AI is here to maim or kill, right? And so when we think about that, and especially us as the data scientists, right, the ones that are building systems, we also have to think about who's gonna benefit from this and who's gonna lose because of this. And mm. if we can't reason about those questions, we should get a, a cross-disciplinary team, you know, get get friends that work in humanitarian sectors and human services and start deeper connections there and deeper conversations around, you know, thinking two steps ahead is hard. It's hard. I'm an optimist. I always think like, oh, it's going to work out perfect. But we also have to have people around us that remind us, hey, it's not always going to work out perfect. And we should think about, again, these risk factors, think about these trust factors, think about, and be prepared for how it might go wrong and how it's going to interact with larger societal systems, like let's say inequality and unequal distribution of resources and oppression. I want to go back to contact tracing for one second and in particular talk about, oh, when I saw that Google and Apple were collaborating, like to do with like sensitive private stuff. I thought about my space of like tech companies with respect to how they think about privacy and how comfortable I am with the way they think about privacy. And none of them are great. But when I look at that spectrum, Apple's on one side and Google's really, really far on the other side. So it was almost I had like this cognitive dissonance around these companies collaborating together. Did you experience something similar or do you have any thoughts on that? I have to first and foremost say that like I know and have met people working in data privacy at both Apple and Google. And I think there's a lot of like really thoughtful individuals and researchers at both companies. Also um, at Facebook right now has active cluster of folks working on privacy and data science. Uh, Snapchat does too. So there's, it's amazing when you start to dive into the data privacy, let's say in data science and machine learning that there's, you know, these people in places that you might not expect. So I agree. But back to your point, like hat tip to those people because I think yeah. that they're doing really. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say it is a question of how it's deployed as well, right? Exactly. It's even and aligned with any company's business incentives. Yeah, and my biggest concern with the Apple Google plan is, you know, outside of, you know, what are we going to do about older devices is to me, it seems like jumping to a solution that we weren't sure worked and we weren't sure was needed. Right. And some of this is because there is so much uncertainty around how it spreads, are there different strains, can one do it again after somebody has recovered. All of these things are still really in flux, right? Which means we don't want to build a solution that everybody thinks will fix something and then turns out it's not even related to the real solution, right? So there's some of that. And that was some of my primary concern around it is well, what's going to happen is, you know, people are going to think, oh, I downloaded the app, so now it means I'm coronavirus safe, and maybe this is like a false sense of security. And then if we use that app, say, in a really restrictive way, such that maybe your employer can look, how many people are going to maybe lose their job or be told to stay at home who are not actually positive for coronavirus? 
So, uh, you know, and how unpredictable is our access to testing in a ubiquitous way? And have we tested everyone who has symptoms? And have we also tested large groups of people who don't have symptoms, right? There's a statistician that works here in Germany alongside the Robert Koch Institute that has been pushing for a larger widespread sampling of tests because just setting up testing locations and having people self report, you can imagine it's going to be people with symptoms and it might be people that are, let's say, overly concerned about their health given the daily news. And uh, for example, I haven't gone to my local testing, so I don't know. I may be asymptomatic, right? So there's, there's all this stuff that we don't know from a scientific perspective, and we don't want to jump into a solution without actually consulting with the scientists who are working on this problem first, you know? I also read that we could have false negative rates of up to 30%, right? Exactly, so, yeah. Also, coming from New York, I don't know if I told you this, I, I was tested. The language they used was fantastic. The doctor said the test did not detect the presence of, as opposed to it came back negative, which I think is actually really, really cool. Tell you what, yeah. though, the swab was really full on. She put my head back against the wall and shoved this thing straight down there. I pity the fool who tested the tiger. I tell you that, Catherine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of this, too. I mean, some of what I've been thinking about, there was a really great piece from the Deep Learning AI newsletter that was around, like, do no harm. And it was about, let's say, like, releasing models as based on incomplete data or incomplete scenarios. And uh, what you said also reminds me there was there was a recent data skeptic podcast with Jessica Holman and uh, her group studies visualization of error and uncertainty in data science. And it's like when we talk about these things, I mean, even some of the reporting I've seen around COVID-19 in the newspapers or in the other media that I've been consuming Maybe I have a level up because I have some statistical training and background, but think about the average, uh, let's say, like human and the level of mathematics knowledge that's there. Can they reason about the risk of infection? Can they reason about the verifiability of these tests? Uh, can they reason about the predictive capacity of a model built on limited or oversampled data from a certain population? We'll have to like responsibly report this information and data because we're trusted members of a group of people who know what data is about. And so we have to really make sure that that's super clear and figure out better ways to represent that than say a way that, that we as a community would talk about errors or that we as a community would talk about uncertainty. Absolutely. I do remember after the presidential election in 2016, people came out and said, oh, the predictions were wrong. And that statement in itself totally misunderstands, and I understand it, but it totally misunderstands what a probabilistic prediction is. If you say something has a one in 10% chance, and it still happens, that was just that one in 10 thing happening, right? And actually, Alan Downey had some wonderful posts on this, and he had an idea when I chatted with him on DataFramed. Um, one idea he had, which I really loved, was newspapers could report these probabilistic predictions by each day doing the simulation and seeing what it what it was and reporting this this future, right, um, in order to get people accustomed. Yeah. And Nate Silva and the people at 538 are using kind of more principled, mindful language around it, saying there's a one in five chance that this will happen. There's a four in, as opposed to that's 10% likely, which people may misinterpret in, in, in a variety yeah. of ways. Um, but we crave yeah, certainty of, as well, right? 
We need yeah. to become more comfortable with uncertainty. Uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, and and make sure that people like know the or have, let's say, the right mental framework to make responsible choices both for themselves and for their communities, right? One of the graphics that Professor Holman mentioned is, I don't know if you saw it, I think it was the New York Times one again, referenced their graphics now twice, where you could trace and see the probability of somebody uh, staying above or below the poverty line based on race in the United States. and. Yeah just by creating like a graphic that instead of, you know, a big bar chart actually had like a person is born, like they end up in poverty, a person is born, they end up not. And visualizing it by, let's say like a visual sampling was a lot easier for people to comprehend. And there's so much more work that we can do around that, around how do we allow people to reason about systems? And some of the work that we're working on is how do we allow people to reasonably reason about privacy in systems, right? So the times, has, the times have done a lot of great stuff on that. I mean, they were early doing interactive, like D3 visualizations and that type of stuff, right? Where I remember there was one which it had um, the job report and it looked like it was going up, but they showed that if it was stationary, all the different ways it could look based on sampling. And they had a similar mm -hmm. one on... It was some election polling and it reported so-and-so was ahead, but it showed that as a function of sampling, all the different ways it could work out. And it showed that interactively. Yeah, I encourage people. I know that uh, Data Camp has several visualization courses. If you haven't taken one, even if you're like, oh, I just want to build ML models, there's there's a lot of interesting applications of visualizations, even when we think about machine learning. So take a chance Absolutely. to dive into something new. And the other thing that, that I think is important is for people to, start to talk more about the difference between uncertainty and risk. You may refer to these as like known unknowns in terms of risk and unknown unknowns in terms of un uncertainty. But the way I think about it is when you're playing in a casino or let's say you're flipping a coin or playing roulette, right? You're playing roulette, you know the odds, right? That's, you're playing with risk there. You know exactly what the distribution is, you know all the possible permutations and what your chances are. What uncertainty would be is if the table was rigged and you didn't know how right, then you actually don't have information around that. So thinking about what you do know and what you don't know. One of the, I think one of the truly, truly deeply challenging things of what we're going through now globally is that there is so much uncertainty. It isn't just risk. We actually, we don't know, right? Yeah, we have a lot of unknowns right now. And we, thankfully, I think more of the unknown, if, if anybody's played the exercise of known to unknown on both sides. We have a lot of unknown unknowns that are starting to move into known unknowns, which is good. This is a good movement. Hopefully, eventually, they'll move into known knowns. But yeah, we need to be a little bit patient with our friends in uh, the biological sciences and health sciences and figure out ways to assist them in their research so we can figure out good responses to the current crisis. Exactly. So I want to get to questions from the crowd in, in a minute. But before that, I'd just love to know if you have a, a final call to action or something you'd like people to focus on or, or, or to think about in the coming weeks and months. I'll ask that people, um, rather than jumping too soon into tech solutions, that you focus on your local community, that you take time to reach out to local community leaders, to community groups that are working in this space, to donate your time and your thoughtfulness and your energy there first. 
And maybe part of that is teaching yourself and people around you something new about privacy, about machine learning, about privacy in machine learning, and try to have some collective action around that. Not collective shaming, but collective empowerment there. In the same sense, I also want to say to please focus on looking after yourself. You don't have to be a hero. And you can't be a hero if you can't take care of yourself first. So I like to say the refrain to a lot of my friends right now, too, who, you know, feel like they have to do something to help is, have you asked yourself what you needed? Make sure you put your own mask on before helping others. Use that from the airline. Maybe it's all still applicable now. We'll see. But, you know, really take care of yourself and the people close to you first and then start thinking about the larger community. Thank you so much, Catherine, for taking such a mindful and, and, and humanistic and empathetic approach as well. I really appreciate that. We've got so many great questions. The first one, we've talked about this, but I, I don't have an answer to it. So I'm going to ask you. And I hope I'm pronouncing your name somewhat correctly. Uh, Raghavendra asks, is there a solution as of now to check if your data is deleted? No, there is no commonplace solution <laughs> for this. Yeah, unfortunately. This is something I think numerous folks are working on. There's some systems that are kind of around this. Now, what we can debate about is whether they've traversed the entire problem space. So maybe it has confirmed that it has been deleted from, let's say, the primary database, but it cannot confirm, let's say, artifacts or intermediary data sources or whether the data set was downloaded to a local data scientist's computer and so on. So this is an open problem. It's not an open problem as in it's, it can be solved, right? But it's an open problem in terms of it's not yet active deployed. I still come back to this idea of duplication, right? Like I I was a teenager in the mid 90s, okay, which meant that um for better or for worse, I'm going to admit to slightly illegal activity now. Or I say some friends of mine, some school buddies of um, were on Napster or burn compact discs, Catherine. They would go buy and they'd take it home and burn 20 I tried to stop them, but they'd do it every day. You know, and then of course iPods came out and suddenly bit torrenting and all of that. Like, how do you even think about verifying deletion when you have this type of duplication? So a bunch of other good questions. Andrew asks, this is great. In order to log on to some UK pub or shop Wi-Fi, that firstly, thank you, Andrew. I actually worked in a pub, the Princess Louise on High Holborn Street in London, and I miss those days dearly. I live with a bunch of Australian barmen. I shared a room with them. Look, in all honesty, I miss British pubs currently. But Andrew asks, in order to log on to this Wi-Fi, the registration process sometimes demands a date of birth. The question is, is this reasonable? For what purpose is this required? Or is it abuse, collecting information for the sake of it? Stored for how long? Accessible by whom? And for what purposes? Andrew says, I believe this is unreasonable, but would appreciate your thoughts, please. Yeah, I mean, we see a lot of these like um, consent being uh, like so from a regulatory perspective, there's, of course, some consent around age, right? There is specific regulation that applies to minors, and that definition is different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. 
And so uh, some of that might be like, oh, we're not going to track you if we think you're under 13. But if you're over 13, we have a right to track you. And it's hidden somewhere in a terms and conditions uh, that evidently only I read. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so there, there may be some legal reasons why people are asking this. However, it's usually around other data methods for collection methods or access methods as well. And so instead of saying something obtuse like, please tell me your age to access, they should maybe be straightforward and say, here's what our website does. Here's how the data access works. If you agree, you have to confirm you're over 14 or whatever it is, right? And uh, unfortunately, I think that this is what I would say is like a dark pattern in terms of consent screens. I totally agree. And to build on that, I think something we see in that question is, let's just say that access to the internet is a basic human right. That's something I believe. I know people who do. I know people who don't. It's definitely something that's incredibly important. And you could view someone requiring you to give up information in order to access something which you have have the right to in certain situations, some sort of ransom as, as well. And it does seem unfair in, in that sense. It's something I'd, I'd encourage us all to, to rally against. Yeah, I mean, transparency, especially in this type of uh, hidden consent and where the data is going to be used and how and what third party may or may not be, let's say, tracking your data access. This is something that I also brought up in terms of privacy as privilege is more often than not, uh, when you use free Wi-Fi, you're trading data for a service but not everybody has at-home Wi-Fi. So we mm. need to think about those problems as well. We have a question from Orhan, O-R-H-N, and Orhan asks, um, Hi, Hugo and Catherine. Thanks for the webinar. That's lovely. I've been following your Python courses on DataCamp. That's awesome. My question is about the health vertical for privacy. I've been consulting a video consultation startup and they've been struggling to scale their data analysis sources across different countries since different countries and health administrations require different sorts of privacy regulations. Is there any collective source of information for data privacy regulations internationally? Oh, I'm just going to build on this. And I think you and I have chatted about this over the past several years. GDPR, for example, if you're a small startup and trying to figure out even what it means, the type of legal costs you can incur then are really disincentives, right, in, in yeah. a lot of ways. So. Like these legislation is really important, but then for a company figuring it out on the other side is a huge challenge. So I think this question speaks to that more generally as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a big part of kind of the daily challenge uh, we're working on right now is how does one determine which privacy techniques to leverage based on both regulation and, and other risks, let's say, of like proprietary information in a model or data sharing between uh, companies that, that maybe don't have perfect trust, right? And so some of this is about modeling, like what is the system that we want to build and what are the risks and threats there? In this case, like maybe the risk would be regulatory risk, right? So can completely empathize that this is like a difficult space. Uh, I follow quite a lot of different people within the compliance and regulation space to try to keep up on things. 
Um, even though they're based in the U.S., the IAPP has a pretty good, I think, Everything's in, in English and it's not always as specific as, let's say, when I read the German reports on it. However, the IAPP has a pretty impressive comparison of a lot of different things. Is an organization mainly for privacy professionals. So I could recommend that you check out things there and definitely um, stay tuned while we're building at Cape Privacy because part of it is about letting people, letting small startups and other teams work on these critical issues while still staying, you know, compliant within the regulatory needs and maybe even within a privacy by default or by design kind of space, right? So again, you shouldn't have to become an expert to do, to make the proper choices here. And unfortunately, that's kind of how it looks like right now. So we have time for one last question. We haven't gotten to all of them, unfortunately, but please do feel Free to reach out to Catherine or myself on Twitter, uh, KJAM and, and Hugo Bound, re- respectively, or on LinkedIn. May take some time for us to get, get back to you, but please, please do be in touch. The final question is, hi, Catherine. This is from Rob. Hi, Catherine. Yeah. Hey, Rob. Hey, mate. He's a government data scientist in the UK. Um, that's why I just called him mate. This is a great question. Naturally, Rob says, naturally, public data trust is a big area of interest. You, Catherine, mentioned that tech alone can't solve all, all the problems. In your eyes, what are the non-tech priorities in the space of public data trust? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. One of the largest things is, or one of the things some that I know from people working in the space is from a legal context, could we actually abide by regulation and set up data trust at the same time? Because there are, of course, a lot of precautions, let's say, especially around electronic health records, as the previous uh, question asker pointed out, they're not, uh, let's say, generalized across all jurisdictions. And so we quickly run into a problem of if my EHR, if my electronic health record data is stored in a data trust in Canada, but I'm a European citizenship that, or uh, I'm a European resident that it gets quite murky the type of consent that I have to give for these things, right? And then let's say the the company that wants to use it is in Brazil, then we open up a whole other thing of international jurisdiction of data and consent and a transparency and so on. So from, from a legal aspect, I know there's quite a lot to dive into around data trust. And then I would challenge us from a from a humanitarian data science perspective and from a non-technical side is, do we understand the problems there? Do we understand the problems of putting a bunch of data together, right? We're creating quite a large security risk from that standpoint. And then do we understand how we can communicate about how the data is being used to persons, right? This is outside of the enforcement that that's actually what it's used for, which is, of course, a a huge technical problem and also just a trust problem, right? And so some of it is kind of my challenge too of can people reason about privacy risk? Can people reason about machine learning if it's new to them? Can people reason about uncertainty, errors, statistics, right? And so we have to answer those questions alongside the larger technical questions. So that was a great question and and a wonderful answer. I wish we had had more time, but we're going to have to wrap up now. I'd just love to thank Joined. We've still got nearly a 1,000 people here, and that's incredible to stick around for an hour and a half uh, for for a conversation like this. I'd like to thank Ryan, who's one of the superstars behind our our, our webinar program here, 
and everyone at DataCamp who makes these webinars possible. Once again, we received lots of questions we weren't able to answer, so feel free to, to reach out to us on, on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. The recording of the webinar will be sent out via email after this whole week of webinars. And don't miss tomorrow's webinar on how to roll out an online first uh, data literacy program, which will be at 11 a.m. ET. Thanks once again for joining. The biggest thanks, of course. Thank you so much, Catherine, for bringing yeah. your expertise and energy. I invited you on for this because I love every conversation we have and it's always a wild ride and this just exceeded all my expectations. i got to be honest. Likewise. Thanks, everybody who joined. Uh, feel free to reach out. I know I promised some explanations of some topics like differential privacy and federated learning that we didn't dive too much into. So if you want to dive into those more, ping me on the Twitters. So Catherine will send out a tweet per day explaining all these technical concepts is what I just said. And I look forward to that in 180, however many characters they increased it to last time. Or less. 240, right? That's the thing that is. Whatever thank it you, Hugo. As always, it's such a pleasure chatting with you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Catherine. And thank you, everyone.